0: Good evening, and today we are going to learn another letter, a public letter that the Rebbe wrote to, it was addressed to the sons and daughters of Israel, everywhere, right, as we mentioned last week, that before um, the high holidays, before Shoshana, and before Pesach, the Rebbe would every year send a public letter. Starting in 1972, the Rebbe would send typically two of them, um, and before Pesach, the letters were either addressed to Rosh uh, Chodesh Nisan, usually was the first letter, and then the 11th of Nisan, which is the Rebbe's birthday. Alrighty, so today we'll, we'll focus on a letter that was, um, that was written by the Rebbe and sent to all the Jewish people around the world on the Shkodesh Nisan 5736, which is 1976. To the sons of da- and daughters of Israel everywhere, God bless you all. Greeting and blessing. The Hebrew name of a festival or of an historic event or anything which is given by the Torah, or instituted by sacred Jewish custom, which also has the force of Torah. Uh, what the Rebbe is uh, explaining, or, or I say, what, he, what he's throwing into the mix here is that don't think that only, you know, five books of Moses um, is considered Torah. In fact, everything that has to do with Jewish tradition, everything that was instituted by the sages, all of that has the power of Torah. And so, therefore, if there is a holiday or a custom that we do or a mitzvah that we do, which its name is not found in the Torah, but it comes from afterwards. Um, It also has the power of Torah and the meaningfulness of Torah. So the rule is that anything, any name expresses, I'm continuing in the first paragraph here, expresses a basic content of the festival or of the thing as explained in many sources. Um, One of the sources is uh, in the, the second part of Tanya, which we actually just concluded, uh, where the, Alter Rebbe, the, the the author of the Tanya explains that the, the reason why Hebrew is called Hebrew, the reason why ancient Hebrew biblical Hebrew is called kodesh, the Holy Tongue is because that's God's language. What does it mean that's God's language? That's God's way of expression. And every letter represents a different energy. Every word is something else in this world. And therefore the name of something is not just a random name of how we, how we reference to something in this world. But in fact, that name represents the DNA, if you will, um, the components um, that, that that build this specific creation. So its name differentiates it from anything else. The same applies to the name Chag HaPesach, the festival of this month. May it bring us and all our Jewish people goodness and blessing. In this instance, it is even more emphatically underscored by the fact. That in Tanakh, which is the Bible, right? torah Nevim, Ruk so Tanakh, as well as in the festival prayers and benedictions, the festival is called Chag HaMatzos, which means the festival of matzah. Yet, it is universally accepted as a matter of Jewish custom to call it the festival of Pesach, or simply Pesach. I was going to um, analyze this, this thing that, you know, Biblically, it's called Chag the holiday of Matzah. And yet, how do we all call it? Pesach, and that's not random. Obviously, there's a reason for it. And certainly the name Pesach teaches us something tremendous about the holiday itself. Now, the Rebbe heightens the stakes here a bit. Considering, the fact, considering that Pesach is the head of festivals, the first and foremost of all our festivals... And the month of Nisan, in which it occurs and constitutes its central point, is the head of the months. As we read in the Torah last week on Shabbos, we read Parashat Chodesh, the parasha where, it, where the first communication that God gave to Moses as an official commandment to the Jewish people of how to live Jewishly, the very first commandment was how to set up the Jewish calendar. And the first thing the only basically the only thing that it says over there is that this month is going to be the first month. In the calendar. And from then on, whenever the Torah says in the first month, it means Nisan. In the third month means Sivan. In the seventh month means Tishrei, which is actually Rosh Hashanah, which kind of doesn't make. I could be the head of the year and be the head of the seventh month at the same time, but that's that's for a different time. But, yeah. Um, what? Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, very good. No, no, very good. So Why they change it from Aviv? That's another name. That's a different name. Chagaviv is what? That's another name. The, na- the, the holiday has in several Nisan, names. Is, is Aviv birth, it to Nisan. No, 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 no. Aviv is, is the season. I know, but it it, it, the month of spring. Okay. Month of okay. spring, right. So Aviv means spring and Nisan is the know. name of the month. Okay. Um, so since, uh, since Pesach is the head of all the festivals and it happens in Nisan, which is the head of all the months, this further emphasizes the significance and content of the name Pesach for all the festivals and for the whole year. Others, Pesach sets a tone for the entire year. And to understand what is the tone that is being set through Pesach, we'll understand that through properly understanding the name Pesach, right? So let's go straight into the name. It can therefore be clearly seen from the above that the festival and also its name convey teachings of the utmost everyday importance for every Jew. All right. The meaning of the word Pesach is indicated in the Torah in the words Ufosach Hashem. So Pesach is not a random word. Pesach is actually referencing to um, something that happened uh, in the lead up or actually in the, in, at midnight of the first festival of Passover. And that is that God told the Jewish people that on the night of the 15th of Nisan, uh, he, he told them to prepare a paschal lamb, which they slaughtered on the 14th, and they put the blood on their doorposts and they were told to roast it. They were told to eat it that night together with matzah and with maror. And then God said, You must stay in your homes until daybreak. And what's going to happen at the crack of at midnight? Uh, God is going to come and destroy the first, going to kill all the firstborn Egyptians. And God will leap over your homes. He's going to skip over the Jewish homes and save the Jewish firstborn. So, what is the word for passing over? Ufosach Hashem. And God is going to leap over. Hence, that's why Pesach is called Passover. Right? Why else would Pesach mean Passover? Because that is the meaning of the, of the verse in which that word is employed with regard to the holiday of Pesach and the historical event that happened on that day. 3,334 years ago. Rashi explains it even more explicitly. Pesach is so-called because of the leap. God leaped over the homes. And you perform all the religious duties connected with the Pesach offering in a manner of leaping and springing. So in fact, the name Passover is, is a message. Not only is it a commemoration For something that God did so many years ago, it's also a message to us, just like God leaped over the homes of the Jewish people. In order to save their firstborn, it's expected that you, when you're celebrating Pesach today, here and now, you should do so with alacrity, with a lot of, uh, how do you say, with a lot of zest and fervor, leaping and springing. Thank you. Right, no, that's true. In other words, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't contradict the idea of the fact that we're meant to recline and relax during the Seder. It's not meant to be a marathon. We're not a uh, triathlon. What do we call it? Mm-hmm. Triathlon, right. Triathlon. We don't, you know, that's not what we're doing on the, on the night of Pesach. But um, the concept is that we, that, that we should do this with, with alacrity, with involvement, with excitement. We don't come to the Seder and uh, we're depressed. We're not injured. Who cares? No, let's go. Let's go to the Seder. Let's lean. Let's do this. Let's do that. We do it with excitement. Okay, so let's let's try to understand this. Why is it so important that commemorating our exodus from Egypt should be connected to leaping? First of all, why did God have to leap? Why does He choose that expression in order to describe how He saved the Jewish firstborn? He could have could have just said, "I'll save them," and that's it. But He uses a very descriptive term. It's, it's very it, 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 it's it's a very um, how do you call it? It's very uncharacteristic. Let's put it this way. Does God have a body? No. If God had a body and he was springing and jumping, okay, you have to say that he was springing and jumping. God doesn't have a body, right? God doesn't have to jump in order to save an Israelite. God could save them anyway. Um, for whatever reason, the, the description of God saving the, the Israelite children, the Israelite firstborn, is being expressed specifically with a word of jumping and springing which lends itself to the idea that we should also be jumping and springing. In other words, be excited and and motivated when we come to commemorate the miracles of Pesach. Why is, so continuing on page two here, why is Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim specifically bound up with leaping and springing? One explanation is as follows. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim is the experience of liberation of exodus from Mitzrayim. For many generations, Jews had lived in Egypt until they found themselves in a state of slavery. By the way, they weren't slaves at the very beginning. At the very beginning, in fact, they were, they were, they were, they were VIPs, right? They were the, the children, they were, they were brothers, they were the family of Yosef, Joseph, who was the viceroy, and he had saved the entire nation from utter destruction as a result of the famine. So they were VIPs for a very, very long time. Only after Yosef died and his brothers died, eh, then things started to deteriorate. And the real slavery, the real bitter slavery, was only about 85 years. When Miriam was born, that's when it started to really heat up. That's where her name was Miriam. Miriam comes from the word maror, bitterness. That's why, that's why she was called Miriam, because that's when the real bitterness of slavery hit them. So he says, you know, they were, for generations, the Jews lived there until they found themselves in a state of slavery. And the enslavement reached such a degree that as our sages of blessed memory relate, there were Jews who did not wish to leave Egypt. Such was the depths of slavishness to which they had degenerated. Slavery had become so ingrained in their psyche. They couldn't find it within their souls, the possibility to hope for a better future. At least 80% remained. 80% of them were were, were vigorously opposed to leaving Egypt and therefore they died before the exodus. And I was bad. <sighs> The Rebbe returns to a theme actually that we learned last week uh, about the height and, and the power of of Egypt in the time. Egypt in those days was the most highly developed country in respect of science, technology, philosophy, etc. All those things which the world commonly considers as culture, civilization. The Rebbe says the world commonly considers it because you know culture connotes something that's high class, right? The, the problem is that science. Technology and philosophy, if not, uh, how do you say, channeled in the right place, in the right way, it's far from culture. In fact, Nazi Germany employed science, technology, and philosophy to do what? To be the worst butchers that the world has ever seen. To do the most terrible things in the world. So therefore, science, technology, and philosophy is not a shoe in to culture, <laughs> you know, from the. You know, you say, yeah, there's the best dimension, the better people, you know, on, on the contrary, continuing to an animal, where civilization connotes the idea they're civilized, right? They're proper, they're welcoming, they're okay, etc. So, the, you know, so the episode says, those things which the world commonly considers as quote-unquote culture or civilization, it was also the superpower of the world. Yet at the same time, the land was sunken in the abyss of moral depravity, as is known from various sources, so much so that it is referred to in the Torah as the abomination of the earth. And from this quagmire, I love that word, this quagmire of Egyptian bondage, as from Egypt itself, the Jews had to extricate themselves and go out with an outstretched arm. In other words, emphasizes two points here. to get out of Egypt that itself needed a tremendous miracle because it was impossible for a slave to leave the physical borders of this, of this land. But besides for that, they, they were sunken into a spiritual quagmire, right into the depravity of Egypt. They were so enslaved that 80% of them didn't even want to leave. Um, so the Jews had to extricate themselves and go out with an outstretched arm, completely free, both physically and spiritually. And directly thereafter, in a very short time, to rise to the highest spiritual plane, to receive the Torah. Which was the goal of Sias Mitzrayim. as the Torah states, God told Moshe, when you lead the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain, Sinai. This was the whole story of the burning bush. And God was sending Moses that he should go and, and lead the people out of Egypt. He didn't want to go. Part of his problem was, he says, what, where am I taking them to? What's the point? But just to make it, you know, just that they shouldn't be slaves anymore. So God said, no, no, no. That there's a reason why you're taking them out. There's a purpose. You're going to bring them to Sinai. And here I'm going to speak with them. I'm going to give them the Torah To receive the Torah with all its mitzvahs, beginning with the Ten Commandments. The first of which are, I am God, your God. That's the first one. And you shall have no other gods, meaning that God is one and unique and there can be no other gods of any kind. That's on the one hand very high and spiritual and cultured, and and I say, turns you into a higher type of person in a spiritual sense. But then there's also, it goes it, it covers all bases, all the way from the highest level of belief in God and rejecting idolatry all the way to the opposite spectrum of, and the tenth commandment is, you shall not covet anything that belongs to others, meaning that not only must one not take away anything belonging to others, but one must not even desire it. This belief in God has to impact our attitudes, the way we live our life, to the point that not only will we not steal, we're not even going to desire that which is not ours. These two concepts, the oneness... uh, Good evening, Karina. Welcome. These two concepts the oneness and unity of the creator and the highest level in the relationship to fellow man, right? That, that, that with the, your relationship with other people is so clean and perfect that you don't even desire what's, what's, what's theirs. Represent the complete and absolute contrast to and negation of the so-called culture of Egypt in those days and similar cultures ever since. Hence, I mean, the, the way you see it, uh, it's completely the opposite of of, uh, of Egypt. All right, anyway, fine. Hence, it is clear that in order to extricate themselves from such an extreme state of Egyptian bondage and reach out for the other extreme, and reach out for the other extreme of complete chirus, real freedom, and the Rebbe puts in parentheses, including inner freedom, Right, you could a person could be free, technically, he's not enslaved, he can do whatever he wants, but he's enslaved to his inner vices, to his inner yuckiness. Right, so we're talking about so to go from the extreme of being stuck in Egypt as a slave and to go to the ultimate freedom to a state of receiving the Torah with the wholehearted, with the wholehearted readiness of Nasa and then the namely. Accepting God's Torah and mitzvahs unconditionally, even before knowing fully their significance. Notice, it doesn't say accepting the mitzvahs unconditionally, even before knowing what they are. <laughs> it's not like the Jews were conned into mitzvahs. They're like, oh, we'll take everything. Oh, we have to not work on Shabbos. Oh, we didn't realize that. <laughs> oh, we need to do this. Uh, oh, I, I think we have. No, no, no. They knew exactly what they were getting. They knew exactly what the mitzvahs entailed. What they didn't know necessarily yet was the significance of the mitzvahs. So they were willing to accept, to behave as Jews, to follow all 613 mitzvahs, even though they don't fully understand the purpose of each one of them, the significance of each one of them. That's the meaning of nasa v'nishvah. You're ready to do it. You're ready to accept behaving this way even before you understand it. But you've certainly heard it. You can't accept what you haven't heard. You can't agree to something you have no idea about. So the Jews were not calling with anything. Fine. But this shows a tremendous devotion to God. So in order to go from one extreme to the opposite extreme, this called for, as indeed it was, the greatest possible leap, a Pesach, in a manner of leaping and springing. They were expected to make a leap. If you're expected to go from the first floor, to the tenth floor, the only way to do it is if you're going to jump. Can't walk? You got to jump, right? Now, right? Okay. that's us first. floor, us tenth. If you have to get from the bottom of the, if you have to the floor to the top of the table, you have to jump onto it, and it's something that could be done. But the idea is, in order to get to something that is um, on a different plane, you have to jump to that plane. And here's and here's basically what we're saying that. The 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 how do you say the definition of E.TS matarium, which is going from the depth of slavery to the ultimate heights of inner freedom, which is the readiness to do whatever Hashem wants, even before understanding its significance, that demands a tremendous leap of faith. I hate that line, but it's it's the best way of saying it. We gotta leap, gotta leap into it. You're not leaping blindly, but you're leaping, you're jumping. And this leap was accomplished while they were still in Egypt, as described in the Torah. On Rosh Chodesh Nisan, God told Moshe to speak to the whole community of the Jewish people about the Pesach. In all detail, including as mentioned above, that all its rites be carried out in a manner of leaping and springing, culminating on the night of the 15th of Nisan when God passed over. Literally, he leaped over and revealed himself to them in his full glory when they were still in Egypt and delivered them from bondage to freedom. Even the fact that God revealed himself to them while they were in Egypt, that itself necessitated God leaping. God had to leap in order to do that. It's not a normal thing for God to be revealed in Egypt. Just as an interesting fun fact, you know, God spoke to Misha while they were in Egypt, but never, almost never, there was one exception, but almost never when he was still within the, the, the capital city. When he was within the capital city where it was full of, of, of idolatry, God wouldn't speak to him. He would have to leave the city limits, go into the open space, which was you know, comparatively much better. And then God would reveal himself to him. Here we're saying that God would reveal himself in every single aspect of Egypt in order to redeem the Jewish people. God had to leap, people had to leap. I mean, we're really jumping here. It wasn't, it wasn't a normal, orderly uh, process. Herein is contained a basic concept of Jews and Yiddishkeit, which is valid at all times and in all places. So here we're going to, I say, apply the lesson of Pesach, of the word Pesach, the idea of Passover, leaping over to um, how, how, how it could be applied to uh, Jewish life everywhere and in all times. Though Jews are in gulos, in exile, in a materialistic world, and to some extent also in a crass world, and are a minority in quantity. So that's just with regard to the big picture. Where are the Jews? They're stuck in a, you know, in a very uh, wild type of world, a crass world as Zaremba calls it. They're stuck in materialism. Um, in the bigger picture, they are a minority, mm-hmm. right? There's I don't know, eight billion people, or I don't know how many billions, and there's a, you know, maybe a dozen million or a little more Jews, right? So it's a we're a tremendous minority, right? Last time you counted, right? <laughs> All right. Uh, likewise, also in, a per- in personal life, where the time given to material aspects, eating, drinking, sleeping, business, etc., is quantitatively greater than the time devoted to spiritual aspects, Torah, prayer, mitzvahs. And by the way, it's by design. You're not doing anything wrong if you're spending more hours eating, drinking, sleeping, and doing business than the amount of hours you're spending learning Torah and praying, etc. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, most Jews, that's what they're supposed to be doing. Right? It's impossible to learn 18 hours a day and still make a lot of money in business. Unless, you know, <laughs> there are ways how that could happen, but it's, it's almost impossible. Nevertheless, so even though quantitatively we're a minority, even though quantitatively uh, the Jewishness in our life, our Jewish life is the minority within the broader context of our life. Nevertheless, it is expected of every Jew that he or she should rise above all matters of golus, exile, and leap over to a state of true freedom, to the highest level of gu'ula, redemption, even while being externally in golos Internally, we're always in gu'ula. We're always, we're always in redemption. Um, indeed, every Jew, man or woman, has the assurance that the necessary powers have been given him or her, to make this leap, power is given by God Himself. You know, someone could ask, How is that even possible? If I'm an exile, I'm an exile. I, I should dream that I'm in redemption. But what's that supposed to mean? What does it mean to, to make that leap? So there's a, a very famous statement, the teaching that originates with the fifth Lababachara. So the rabbi was the seventh Rebbe and his father-in-law was the sixth Rebbe and his father was the fifth Rebbe. Um, Just to give you a little bit of a context in which this um, this statement was was said and repeated, so many many years ago, there was a time it was dur- it was it was during the times of the czars, and there were tremendous forces trying to force the Jewish community to make changes in their education system. Until then, all the Jewish kids were going to cheder, cheder that they learned exclusively, you know, Torah subjects and things like that. There were those that wanted to force the Jewish kids to go to to go to you know education like everyone else. Uh, their ultimate goal was to take them away from traditional Judaism. Uh, there was there was a lot of there was a lot of political wrangling and there was a lot going on. And the fifth Rebbe was in the, really in the thick of things. The Czar ordered or whatever the education ministers they ordered a meeting and all the leaders of the Jewish people had to be there. And the, Rabbi Ashab, the Rebbe Ashab Fifth was there. Now, at one point, the government basically communicated to the rabbis there that they didn't have a choice. Like, they're either going to agree to it or they'll be taken care of. So the rabbis stood up The Rebbe said like this, everyone needs to know that only our bodies were sent to exile. Our souls were never sent into exile. Now, we were sent into exile against our will, and we will not leave exile when we want to. God sent us into exile. He's going to take us out. But he only sent our bodies. He only sent our physical, material realities into exile. Our souls, nothing doing. Our souls have nothing to do with exile. And therefore, the external forces of exile have no control over our souls. And here we're dealing with education, with the Jewish kids. This is a soul issue. So I don't, so, I mean, the Rebbe was basically saying, the czar and the minister of education and all these people, they can say whatever they want. They're not going to get us because we're not theirs. Our souls don't belong to them. So what is it? And, and so that, that happened then. Then uh, in, in the next generation, this was under communism. So the previous rabbi, he was uh, he was arrested. You know, they, they were shutting down Judaism. He was continuously keeping the schools open and the mikvahs and the shuls and everything like that. And finally, in 1927, he was arrested. He was actually sentenced to the firing squad. They wanted to, they wanted to kill him, but that was miraculously changed. And ultimately, he was sent off for three years in exile. So, when he was in the train station boarding the train to go off to his exile, under as I say, he was under he was under communist control. Not just because he lived in communist Russia, but because he was he was a prisoner. and He was being sent off. The, the train station was packed. It was packed with chassidim. Then no one would be the next time they would see the rebbe if they would ever see the rebbe again. And the Rebbe stood there, I imagine, like on the train, like, you know, he was a bit elevated, so everyone was able to hear him. And the Rebbe repeated verbatim what his father said a few dozen years earlier, two dozen years earlier at this meeting. He said, everyone should know they only took our bodies into exile, but our souls are not. And he told them, he had been arrested for opening up schools and for doing all these things I mean, in front of everyone. You know, the, the KGB agents, or then it was called the GPU or NKBD, whatever, they were all there. And he said it clearly said, our souls are absolutely free. So why do you have to leap? Well, to get in touch with that (laughs) takes a jump, takes a serious jump because, you know, we're usually uh, under the influence of externalities of what's going on around us. And here we're being told, no, 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 tune into the truth, tune into the inner freedom that we have been granted 3,334 years ago, all of the trouble that's come afterwards those are all externalities painful, dirty, traumatizing, all of that. It's got nothing to do with our souls and therefore if you want to, if you ask a Jew, what are you really you're really a free person really you are you are free to serve God uh, as, uh, as as you truly want to uh, as a wants, uh, God uh, a Jew wants to serve God properly so really it takes a tremendous leap to get into that mode to get in touch with that. That truth. Um, Okay, so this is in general the concept of so. So what's the idea here? Yes, Mitzrayim Exodus is framed by the name Pesach, which means to leap over. It's all about leaping. The whole story then, over three thousand years ago, was all leaping, right? To the Jews to get out of Egypt, the slavery of Egypt, and to. 50 days, less than 50 days later, to be standing at Sinai and to receive the terror that took a tremendous leap for God to reveal himself in Egypt and to take the Jewish people out that itself also took a tremendous leap. And therefore, this whole concept of chime has to happen always in a manner of leaping, to constantly, as you say, to disregard the current situation and to get in touch with the truth, even if it demands a leap, even if it doesn't make sense, even if the process seems to be out of order. The said teaching applies, as mentioned, both when it is day as well as when it is night. Both for one who is in a state of true light as well as for one who for various reasons is in a state of darkness. Why does there say this? So there's a mitzvah to recite the Shema in the morning and in the evening. Right? B'shach of v'k'machal. When you go to sleep, when people go to sleep, and when you wake up, wake up from their bed. There's a mitzvah to recite the Shema in the morning and in the evening. Now the Shema, the definition of the Shema, the paragraphs that we are obligated to recite in the morning and in the evening, is only the first. The paragraph Shema and V'ahavta. That's one paragraph, which is in Vayeschanon, which is the second, uh, the second parasha of Devarim, Deuteronomy. How's the is it hot? anyone okay? Um, and then the second paragraph is which is in Parashat Akir. It's another paragraph, that's two paragraphs. But if you're going to open up a Siddur, you'll notice that we have three paragraphs in the Shma. You have the Shma which is one, then we have the second paragraph, which is Vahim and then there's a paragraph about the mitzvah of tzitzit. There's a whole paragraph. And every time we recite this Bishma, we also say that paragraph. Why? The end of that paragraph it says, "I am God, your God, who took you out of the land of Egypt." So why do we recite it? Because there is a, there's an obligation in the Torah to remember the Exodus from Egypt every day. You should remember the day that you left Egypt all the days of your life. Fine. No. Does it say how many times you have to recite it? It would seem once a day. Okay, so you want to make sure that everyone says that paragraph and remembers the Satan and every day. So let's say the third paragraph of the Shema in the morning Shema. Once I said in the morning, why have to say it again in the evening. But for some reason, it was instituted that, no, you should also say it in the evening. Whenever you recite the Shema, also recite the third one. And there was a big question. Where, where do we, do we have any source that one is obligated to recite to, 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 to recite that third paragraph, which is about Yitzhak and trying the exodus, by night. Why, why do you have to recite it then? And in fact, in the Haggadah, there's a quote of a Mishnah. Uh, it's, a, it's actually a very fascinating Mishnah. It comes from a, I mean, there's a, there's a whole backstory to this Mishnah. But anyway, Rabbi Lazar ben Azariah, who was the, leader, the newly appointed president of the Jewish community, on his first day in the job, he said, you know, I've always wondered, do we have any, uh, source to indicate that we are obligated to remember Yitziat Mitzrayim, the Exodus from Egypt, by night as well. By day, we, cl- we clearly have it. But by night, who knows? Who says? He says, then came a great scholar. His name is Ben Zoyma. He said that if you look at the verse, read it, uh, you know, read it carefully, it says you shall remember Yitziat Mitzrayim all the days of your life. So that's including, I'm sorry, it's in that God, I said that. Yeah. You weren't listening. You're listening too much to that God and not to me. Shatter, not no. Okay. Um, so uh, so so he said, and we learn from here the cally mechan, that includes and that indicates that you have to remember it's yatraim not only by day, but also by night. Great. So what do we see? It's Yat Mitraim. The message of It's Yat is relevant by day and by night. So, you know, Judaism, even though it may sound technical, it's never only technical. There's layers and layers of meaning. So here you have a technical thing. You have to say the paragraph in the morning and also at night, only in the morning. And the answer is, yeah, you got to say it both times. Fine. So I'm going to stand by night. When I'm davening my I'm going to say the two paragraphs and the third paragraph. Great. says, but let's think for a moment. What do we say? Exodus, the message of Exodus is relevant by day and by night. When it's light and when it's dark. Not just when it's physically light and physically dark, but also when it's when, we, when, when there's brightness in our life and even when there's darkness in our life. So what does that mean? Um, <clears throat> in the former case, so we, the obvious one is that we have to remember Tziat Mitzrayim by day. Now, based on what we just said about Tziat Mitzrayim, it would seem that the message of Tziat Mitzrayim is most relevant when things are dark. No, no, no. no. The first thing is you got to remember Tziat Mitzrayim by day, even when things are light. What does that mean? Pesach reminds one and demands that even when one is on a highly illuminated plane, one must not remain stationary, but must strive for a still higher level, using the past achievement as a springboard for a leap to a higher plane. It's bright outside. Things are great. You see your, you see your path. You're on the right path. You're in the right direction. You got to jump. You're in a great place. But Judaism demands that from this great place, that should only be a springboard to even greater places. And one who is in a lowly state is urgently reminded not to remain in that position even a moment longer, but leap out of it to attain geula and true freedom, just like the Jewish people did then. Right? They were they were stuck in the quagmire of of Egypt, of that quagmire, and uh, and they 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 did this tremendous leap. They they jumped out and and they achieved. Matan Torah, they, they achieve uh, being worthy of receiving the Torah within 50 days. <clears throat> and in both cases, as well as for all those who are in the intermediate stages, they'll never say, not everyone is like to the extreme. You know, sometimes you find yourself kind of in the middle, somewhere. This radical change for the better is achieved through serving God on this mountain in the spirit of Na'asev Mishma. Through the study of Torah and doing mitzvahs in daily life, even before understanding the significance, the way to achieve the way to, to properly and to successfully achieve that leap is by doing what the Jews did. What do they do? They went towards Sinai. They came to Sinai and they said, "Nasim and Nishma, we're ready to behave Jewishly. We're ready to learn Torah even before we properly understand the significance of it." Um, and as mentioned above. Everyone receives in this effort the help of God, who works salvations in the midst of the earth, in the depths of earthiness. The, the one who does salvation, the care of our, it's even inside in the quagmire of earthiness. God is able to do great miracles and great salvations. And is able to help us achieve uh, tremendous spiritual things. What, you got me in there. No, I was no problem. Out. May God grant, there yeah, on, the, on page four, may God grant that this Pesach leap be carried out and achieved in a state of true freedom, which includes freedom from all things that interfere with achieving the purpose of man's life, so that it be a worthy life, a life in harmony with the divine intention. You know, you ever would, what does is, what is a worthy life mean? I ever told you the story of. Uh, you may have heard the story, just don't recognize the name. It's difficult to recognize these names here. He was, uh, huh? Lieple. Lieple. yeah, He came from Lieple. that's where he came from. Who knows? Maybe it's in Ukraine, and they might like you know. It might be in the news because for some reason, all of a sudden, all these Hasidic towns are in the news. Anyway, good for them, huh? Anyway, you know, as you say, I'd rather be anonymous than be a, a headline. <laughs> just, just. Keep things, keep things anonymous for me. All righty. So what does it mean to have a worthy life? So Rabbi Leppler was, was a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, first Chabad Rebbe. In fact, during the time period of the Alter Rebbe's life, when he was a chassid of the Alter Rebbe, he wasn't that, I say, no, he was pious. He was a pious guy. But, but he wasn't that uh, academic, studious, smart. He was a, more of a simpler type of guy. But, but he was very pious, uh, very committed. He was a very like, you know, they say a fire you dickhasid, know, you know, he's on fire. Um, later on, interestingly enough, later on during the during the, the leadership of Alterab and Mittalarabah, I'm not gonna get into the details, but, but ultimately Rabbi Kassilaphtar became one of the greatest um, geniuses in Hasidic thought. That's a whole story for itself. Maybe we'll talk about it at a different time. But Anyway, let's go back to the Altadeva. One time the Debbie came up to Rabbi up Epler and he said, I want to give you a blessing. What's the blessing? I want you to be rich. So I take it in a flash, huh? He said, no, I don't want it. Said, Why? He says, who needs wealth? It's a distraction. It's a distraction from living uh, you know, a meaningful life. So we said, okay. Fine. I want to give you a different blessing blessing, long life. So here you say, but on one condition. What's the condition? It shouldn't be in Yiddish, you say, shouldn't be peasant ears. What does it mean peasant ears? You have eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. What does that mean? What's a peasant? A peasant is a simple guy. All he knows is, there's the farm and the bar. That's it. Right? Work hard, make a few dollars, feed the family. If you even get to there, go to the bar and drink yourself drunk. By the way, it doesn't have to be so... uh, A peasant doesn't have to be only someone that goes to the farm and the bar. Someone could be in a big CEO suit and, uh, you know, riding in a beautiful car and going to work every day, etc., and also be a peasant. What is it all about? Making a few bucks and entertaining yourself, and that's it. Says, I'll take the long life. On condition that they're not peasant ears, they're not Then They said, "Okay." Well what he said, "Well, do you want to give me a long life? Give me a worthy life. Give me a life that may eyes see the right stuff, that my ears are listening to the right music. Give me a life that I'm not going to be distracted." And, and by the way, you know what ended like that? He lived long and he was rich. <laughs> Got both, so lucky him, huh? He had to work hard for it. And by the way, you know, to, to, to be presented with the option of wealth with no strings attached, and to, re- to reject it. Or the option of long life with no strings attached, and to reject it and say, no, I want strings attached. It, just to have a wealthy, long life with no purpose and no direction, that's slavery. Being a peasant is the worst type of slave. To be a serf, that's the worst thing. Why? The guy can do whatever he wants. He can work, he can eat, he can eat, he can do everything. No, but that's not life. There's no difference to you and the cow. That's the... All right. So worthy life. Um, hold on. And the cheirus of everyone individually, the freedom of every person individually, the personal geula, personal redemption, while still in goes, will hasten the realization of the cheirus, the redemption of the totality of Jews everywhere, and bring about the fulfillment of the promise. The horns the strength and glory of the tzaddik, the righteous, shall be uplifted, which, as explained by our sages, refer to the ten glories, including the crowning glory of a righteous Mashiach, at the true and complete Geulah, speedily in our days. In fact, this this verse, uh, the horns of the tzaddik, so it comes from Tehillim chapter 75. (laughs) Read every day, huh? Oh, great. So I'm, I'm glad I chose this letter. So why did the Rebbe mention something from chapter 75? Okay. Right. So the Rebbe is mentioning this because this letter was penned about a week and a half before his birthday. In 1976, the Rebbe turned 75. That means up until then, he was saying chapter 75 because he was 74, he was turning 75. Um, so the Rebbe was quoting mm. a, 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 in other words, the Rebbe lived with this chapter mm-hmm. very good that's, that, that's the whole idea, to live with it anyway, so that's, that's the blessing of a kosher and joyous Pesach signed, the Rebbe's signature yep, so that's that's the deal so what do we have from here the name of the holiday, Pesach tells us all we need to know about the holiday that to be a Jew it's not about due process not about step. By step by step, you gotta jump, you gotta leap. Every day you need to leap, in the morning and at night, when it's bright and when it's dark, when you're in the best of places and when you're in the worst of places, jump and continue jumping. And when you live a life of jumping, not only could you be an Olympic uh, Olympic gold winner, but uh, but the idea is that you know all, all of us have to be Olympians, basically, right? You have to constantly be moving and going forward. Um, in our appreciation for you, this guy, our dedication to you, this guy, the way we help others, the way we treat others. And uh, when we, I say, when we absorb this message and we make it a part of who we are, then we come in, then we get in touch with that inner freedom that we all have and it can never be taken away from us. Alrighty. Um, I know I wrote in the thing 70s and 80s, but we only have time for that, so. <laughs> I'm sure you'll forgive me if we're going to end the class now and uh, look forward to seeing you next week.